Welcome to The Positioning Show, where we discuss topics related to the practical application of positioning for marketing, sales, and product teams. I'm April Dunford, a consultant, author, and the world's leading expert on positioning for B2B technology companies. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Positioning Show. Thank you so much for joining me again. Hey, last episode, we started a conversation about sales pitches. So there's a couple of key things that I think are important when we're thinking about sales pitches. One, we do all this work on positioning. And often what happens is the positioning never survives the jump from marketing to sales. This is super, super common. And when I started looking at this problem, what I noticed was that on the sales side, there wasn't really anything in the structure of the sales pitch that would accommodate us doing any positioning. So today what I want to cover is a little bit of what I see in sales pitches and a little bit of a conversation around what are the pluses and minuses to the different kinds of sales pitches that I see out there. So first of all, some people look at a sales pitch as an opportunity to tell a story. Other people do not believe that that is the purpose of the sales pitch. And what I find is it matters a lot how technical the audience is and also how technical the people are inside the company. And, you know, is it a sales rep doing the demo or is it a sales engineer doing the demo? But basically what I've seen is there's this first most common style of sales pitch. And by the way, when I mean sales pitch, I don't mean whatever we did to qualify the prospect. This is the meeting when the prospect is said, yes, I agree. I will come in and spend some time with your rep. You have half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And the idea is we're going to show a little bit of the product and we're going to answer the question like, what do you guys do? Okay. So first substantive sales call with a rep. So here's the most common thing that happens. Most common thing is the rep gets on and they give a demo and that's it. Like just the facts, Jack, <laughs> like you, you, you asked for a demo, you're coming in, you're getting a demo and we're not trying to spin that. We're not trying to do anything with that. And a lot of times what I see SaaS companies doing is a standard product walkthrough, meaning if there's four drop-down menus, we're going through all four drop-down menus and we're going to go bang, 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 one, two, three, four, five, give you all the choices, show you all the stuff. And the idea is that it's up to the customer to figure stuff out. And we don't want to be pushy salesperson here. We're going to let the product speak for itself. Now, if you think about this, there's a few problems with this. One is, hey man, if we could just let the product speak for itself, we wouldn't need salespeople. <laughs> like, why are there salespeople involved in this at all? The reason you have a salesperson involved is usually because there's something more complicated, usually because the customer is trying to make a decision between lots of different options and just looking at the product alone isn't actually helping them make that decision. They need to have, they have questions about implementation and integrations and how is this going to work across multiple departments and pricing structure and deployment, all kinds of stuff. So the sales rep's job in a first substantive sales call shouldn't be only to show the product. The second thing is uh, it puts all of the burden on the customer, all of it. So it's up to the buyer to figure out 
what's important and what isn't. It's up to the buyer to figure out, hey, these features, do all the solutions on the market have these features or just you? The buyer has to figure this out. The other thing the buyer has to figure out is the translation from features to value. Now, sometimes that translation is really obvious. Sometimes the buyer is familiar with the features and they know what the features are about and why they're good. A lot of time that's not true. And in fact, a lot of time your jazziest features, your most innovative features are actually not that obvious because no one else has them. And the prospect hasn't seen that stuff before. So they don't necessarily know, what do I use this for? What's the value out of it? Like, how does this impact my business? So in a standard product walkthrough, we put that burden on the prospect. Prospect has to do all that work themselves. The other issue we have with the product walkthrough is that yes, it shows the product, but that's all it does. So it doesn't give us a chance to talk about the company really in a structured way. It doesn't necessarily give us a chance to talk about customers or things we've done with other companies. It doesn't necessarily give us a chance to talk about you know, why us versus the other guys beyond just straight feature functionality? And there are a lot of reasons why companies would want to work with you that go beyond the product, professional services, support, pricing structure, all kinds of things, that partnerships that you have with other companies. Again, a straight product walkthrough demo doesn't actually give us the chance to do all that stuff. Here's the second most common one I see. This is where the salesperson decides, well, we don't, we, we need to do some discovery and figure out what the customer wants or what the customer situation is. And then we're going to attempt to tailor the pitch to the customer. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad idea. And in fact, obviously we want to do discovery. Even if the prospect has been qualified, usually it's a light qualification. So we don't know a lot about their situation. We don't know what we may not know who else we're up against. We may not understand what the status quo solution is with the customer. There's a lot of things we need to do in discovery to figure that out. I'm a big believer in discovery. We need to do discovery in a first substantive sales call. What I don't like is the way I see discovery done at a lot of SaaS companies. So what I'm seeing is a lot of companies that'll just say, so, uh, you know, what are you looking for? So do you have any requirements? List out what those requirements are, things like this. This is a little bit of, you know, one, leading the witness, <laughs> and two, um, you know, th this kind of ambling discovery with the idea that we don't know anything about the customer at all, I think is maybe swinging the pendulum too far in one direction. We need to understand the customer's situation, but let's be real here. We are not, for the most part, if we're a product company, we are not in the business of building a custom solution here. There's a set of things that our product does. And there's a whole lot of other things that our product doesn't do. So just coming in and having the customer ramble on about, here's my problem, and here's my list of requirements that I've already made, it doesn't really give us an opportunity to one, educate the customer at all, or two, maybe make sure that some of our special stuff gets on that list of requirements. So we absolutely do want to do discovery, but at the same time, we don't want to completely abdicate our role as an expert in solutions. The other thing that drives me crazy about this discovery led pitch is 
often what I see is the rep will ask a set of questions. Sometimes this set of questions has been dictated to them. Uh, so they'll ask the set of questions. And then what happens? They just flip into a normal product walkthrough. Like none of the questions actually changed what they were going to show the company anyway. So why, why are we doing it? <laughs> I'm not sure that, that a lot of discovery is actually done well. Um, so anyways, I am a big believer in discovery. I'm not a big believer in this. We're going to ask a bunch of questions and then, you know, something happens after that. The other type of sales pitch that I see a lot is one that I used to do when I was starting out. I was taught, this is how we do a sales pitch. It's what I call the problem solution pitch. So the problem solution pitch is we start with the problem and then we show how our product is the solution to that problem. And I think if you're going to do anything, you know, this is maybe not a bad way to do it. In our definition of the problem, that gives us a little bit of leeway to kind of define the problem the way we want to define the problem. The problem with the problem, however, is that what I see in practice, most SaaS companies will define the problem in a really big, vague way. And in fact, they're defining the problem the same way all their competitors are defining the problem. So I don't think this actually gives you any advantage. Like if you say, hey, we sell accounting software, you know what the problem is? Accounting software is too hard. But all the other accounting software is saying the same thing. Oh yeah, accounting software, it's too hard. So then that leads us to value that's the same. So our stuff is easier. Oh yeah, our stuff's easier too. So what I found in using this problem solution pitch is that it didn't give us enough leeway to really dig into our differentiation because our differentiation tended to be something that was a little bit more specific and just stating the problem didn't actually set us on a path to get somewhere different than where our competitors were going to lead the customer. So the problem solution pitch, I don't know. I think that's got some issues too. The other thing is that, you know, in practice, again, most of the time I used the problem solution pitch, we would do the problem and then we do the solution and the solution was just a product walkthrough again. So like, you know, nothing, nothing actually changes in any of these pitches. Um, all right. Th there's this other kind of pitch that I see that has its own really distinct set of problems. And this is a pitch style that I see a lot in venture back startups. And that's where the company has gone to raise money and they've built a venture pitch. And then they've attempted to take that venture pitch and use it in sales. Sometimes it's actually not a conscious thing. Like sometimes just stuff from the venture pitch has just kind of creeped into the sales pitch. There's a lot of problems with this. One is that a pitch to a VC in my mind is a completely different pitch than a pitch to a customer in general. The pitch you're doing to a VC is very oriented in the future because the VC is really all about why do I want to invest in your company for a return I'm going to make five years from now, 10 years from now, maybe longer than that. So it's really about the vision. It's about where the company's going to be. It's about where the whole market's going to be. It's about the future. When you're doing a vision style pitch, there's a bunch of things that you can leave out because we're talking about the future. So in general, you don't have to differentiate too much against today's competitors beyond really the status quo. So the vision pitch is usually like, hey man, there's this big change in the world. And if we 
you know, take out our spy glasses and look into the future, five years, 10 years, that change is going to disrupt this entire market. And when that market is disrupted, there's going to be winners and losers, man. And, and we're winners and all those other guys that are doing it the way they're doing it now, they're losers. They're like the old way. We're the new way. And, and, you know, you can talk about it this way. You don't have to worry about tiny little competitors that are nipping at your heels. You don't have to talk about copycat things out in the market. You can ignore all of that because you're talking about some future state that has yet to happen yet. Now, this works great for a venture capitalist. This is not the same for a customer. So a customer is looking at you in a completely different way. The customer is basically sitting across from you and saying, hey man, I got today's money, today's money, not five years from now money, 10 years from now money, and I need results today. So they may care a little bit about your vision. I mean, they certainly don't want you going out of business in a few years, especially if they're making a big investment, but they don't necessarily care that much about the future that's happening five years from now. What they really want is value today. So if I buy your product today and we implement it this week, this month, what do we get right now? The other thing is that for a customer, you're going to have to differentiate from all the other options that they have right now, not the theoretical options they might have five years from now, all the other options they have right now. And so simply saying, oh, there was an old way of doing it and we're a new way of doing it. Well, that's kind of interesting for the customer, maybe, but you know what? Their old way is actually working just fine for a lot of customers. The new way, hmm, you're assuming that new is valuable. New isn't value. It just plain isn't. New doesn't get my business anything. Like we're going to have to get way more specific than, well, they're the old garbage and we're the new hotness. <laughs> we can't get away with just that. So when we say new, what do we mean? Like, what is the value of new? What's so great about new? And here's the other problem with old way, new way is sometimes there's a lot of value in old. In fact, if you have a big incumbent competitor in the market, chances are they've been around for a while. And you know what that makes them? That makes them reliable. That makes them safe. That makes them an easy choice that a buyer isn't going to get fired for picking. So in startups, when we're pitching to an investor, this idea of old way, new way, it represents disruption. And that's good. Disruption is good. That's where new markets emerge from. That's how investors make a lot of money is when there's a big shift and new stuff comes out, and, you know, the old guys go out of business and the new people take over. That's when everybody gets rich. But for a customer, old way can feel kind of safe and new way can feel kind of dangerous particularly if you're not telling me what the value of the new way is. I need more value. Like new is not inherently valuable. The other thing that I find in these kind of vision pitches is the vision pitch doesn't actually get into too much of the guts of the product. It, 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 there's, there's no concept of value. And because there's no concept of value for the customer today, there isn't really a concept of how we enable that value which is our features. And let's face it, the, the customer's coming to you to get a demo, probably, 
they're going to want to know a little bit about how does the product actually work? Like you can't just say, hey, we're doing this thing and not tell me anything about how you actually get it done. So we do need a way to get into some of the specifics. But what we want to do is actually talk about the specifics of how we get something done within the context of the value that those features actually deliver. So I think we need to be very careful with getting too far out over our skis and talking about the future and the vision and all the rest of it and not painting a compelling enough picture for the prospect about why does this matter today? The most dangerous aspect of this vision-oriented pitch is that we know that 40 to 60% of B2B purchase processes end in no decision. We know that no decision is a lot about the customer being worried about making the wrong choice. If you come in and start talking too much about stuff that you cannot do today, so we're talking about the vision five years from now, then you run the risk that the customer says, great, I love it. I super, lo I love the vision. I'm, I'm all in. You come back to me next year or the year after when you've got that thing and I'll buy then. What you're actually doing is giving the customer a reason to delay the purchase. So if you're in a situation right now where a lot of your customers are saying, hey, not right now, not this year, maybe next year, the last thing you want to be doing is getting too far into the vision and not giving people a reason to buy our stuff right now for the product we have right now against the competitors we have right now. So what do we learn from looking at all these different pitch structures? One, just showing the product isn't enough. We're going to have to go beyond that. We want to actually contextualize what the customer is seeing. We want to make sure that our differentiation is coming to the foreground. We want a place to talk about things that are not just product. So that's one thing. Two, we know the problem solution pitch, the drawbacks on that are that we're not actually setting up our unique value. If we define the problem in too much of a generic way, we sound just like everybody else. We, we solve the problem, everybody else solves the problem. So what? Um, we also know that the vision pitch gets us a little bit too far into the future and we can't rely on this concept of new is better simply because it's new. So what we actually want to do, I think, is think about weaving a bit more of a story into our first sales call pitches. Now, when I started thinking about this stuff, I thought, well, maybe we can take conventional storytelling structure and apply it to a pitch. And I'm not the first person to think of that, but a lot of people have thought about that. In fact, if you're in marketing, there's a very famous book. It's called Building a Story Brand by this guy, Donald Miller. Hey, look, I got one on my desk right here. This is a great book. People should read this. Um, if you're familiar with the concept of hero's journey at all, this is this very old storytelling structure that's been around since the 1800s. I'm not going to go into the history of hero's journey because you can Wikipedia that yourself. But uh, there's this old storytelling structure called hero's journey. And it's about a hero, goes on a quest and, you know, encounters some obstacles and overcomes them and then goes to victory and avoids defeat and returns home a transformed hero person. This has been popularized in entertainment. So once you understand hero's journey, you see it all the time in the movies. In fact, the most common example when people talk about hero's journey, they always talk about Star Wars and it maps exactly to hero's journey 
honestly, you can't read about hero's journey without talking about star Wars. It's kind of incredible anyway. So hero's journey, that's a storytelling structure. And in the book, building a story brand, Donald Miller simplifies the hero's journey, storytelling structure into seven or eight steps and shows you how you can use hero's journey commercially in your marketing efforts in particular. So I started using story brand structure in some of the marketing stuff I was doing back when I was in-house as a practicing marketer. And in particular, I found it worked really good for a customer case study. So if I was trying to tell a story around uh, how a customer used our product, it worked really well. You know, I could say, look, you know, the customer is the hero and they had this problem, but they went on a quest and then they, you know, they, 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 they picked our stuff. Yay. And then they achieved success and avoided defeat. And that worked really well. Where it didn't work was in a sales pitch, like not at all <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Like one, in the story brand structure, they talk about obstacles, but there's no real place to talk about competition and differentiation. That's kind of a big miss. Like in a sales call, we actually need to talk about that a lot. The second thing is there's no, there's no easy way to talk about value. You can talk about the results that a customer achieved, and that's clearly marked in the storytelling structure. But it's, it's a little bit harder to work in, like, you know, here's the value we deliver that no one else can, which is kind of critical to what we're doing in a sales call. So there's no way to kind of paint a picture of the market and your place in it. It just doesn't work in the structure. And then there are another couple of like key sales things that don't kind of work in there. Like, where do we do discovery in this? This is more like I'm talking at you. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I'm giving you this story. Sit back, audience, while I tell you this story. It's kind of not designed for a back and forth kind of discovery situation. So that didn't work for me. So while I appreciate story brand and, and things you can do with that on the marketing side of the house, I don't think it works very well in a sales situation. And there's just too many gaps. So can we build a storytelling structure that makes sense for a sales pitch? Obviously, I think we can. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here talking to you about this stuff. But here's, here's how I learned to think differently about this. So up until a few years into my career, I had been building sales pitches because my background is in product marketing and product marketers build the sales pitch or help out with the sales pitch often. And so I was doing problem solution pitches. That's how I learned to do it. So problem solution pitches. So, we, you know, we'd be crafting the problem and then we'd have this thing that looked kind of like a product walkthrough. And I did that up until I got a job at IBM. And when I got this job at IBM, we were launching a new product. And part of the, the process of launching a new product was building the first call sales pitch deck. So I'm working through this product launch process. I can't find the, the template for building the first pitch sales deck. My boss comes to my office and says, oh, I've, I found this thing for you. You're going to have to build this sales pitch deck. And what he gave me was a binder. And the binder, I'm not kidding, it was five, six inches thick. And he plonks this thing on my desk and he says, here it is. This is the IBM official pitch structure. And I was like, man, 
<laughs> this is overkill. And inside there, there was the 59,000 steps to building a sales pitch. Now, let me tell you, of the 59,000 steps, you know, about 58,900 of them are things that you would never do outside of IBM, like never in a million years. It assumed that you were doing IBM style deal, which is a very, very big deal, a multi-million dollar deal uh, that takes you more than a year to close in an account where you probably have already sold something else. This isn't the first IBM thing to go in there. So all that stuff was baked into the sales pitch structure. But there were a couple of things in the sales pitch structure that after I had built a dozen or so pitches, I really started to appreciate. What was interesting about the IBM sales pitch structure, which by the way, IBM did not just make up on their own. That didn't come from nowhere. That sales pitch structure actually came from them working with some very smart sales consultants doing something that was at that time considered a challenger sales methodology. So in a previous episode, if you saw my interview with Matt Dixon, that was Matt Dixon's team and his work uh, that resulted in the challenger sale. It was challenger sale methodology that we were using inside IBM. Anyway, that pitch structure had a lot of stuff in there, again, that you would never use if you weren't IBM, but there were two or three things in there that I thought were really genius and then I thought, these are applicable even if I was doing a smaller deal with a faster sales cycle. The first thing was the way the pitches started. They never started with the problem or a generic definition of the problem. They certainly never started with the vision and they never started with product. We, we never went straight into product ever. We always started with something that the team called the insight. And the insight was essentially what we knew about the problem that informed the way we built the solution. What it was, was our point of view on the market. And this was very specific to us. It's something none of our competitors could talk about. And so the neat thing about starting with that insight was that Right from the very first thing we said in a sales call, we were talking about our point of view, which essentially pointed customers towards our differentiated value right from step one. Now, we're going to talk later about how you actually get to this insight. But the neat thing about insight is it gives us a very unique starting point that right at the beginning differentiates us from everyone else. So we start with, here's our point of view on the market. That starting point is a very, very strong way to start a pitch. Second thing a sales pitch needs is it needs a way for us to paint a picture of the entire market and our place inside that market. So a customer, particularly a customer that is indecisive and can't figure out what option they should pick, needs to feel comfortable that they've done enough research and they understand the whole market enough in order to make a good choice. So part of what we can do in a sales pitch, because we know a lot about the market and we know a lot about options, is we could paint a picture of our point of view of the entire market and then position ourselves in that. So that's the second thing we need to do in the sales pitch. Third thing is value. If you're doing a sales pitch and the core of that sales pitch is not the differentiated value that you could deliver that no one else can, then what are you doing? <laughs> and this is a bad pitch. This is literally the answer to the question, why pick you 
over all the other options. We need to be centered on differentiated value. That needs to be the core of the pitch, not our features, not anything else, certainly not our vision. It's our differentiated value. What can we deliver for customers that no one else can today, right now? So that's the third thing. The next thing that it needs to accomplish is it needs to give us some room to do things that the sales rep actually needs to do in this call, which is, you know, discovery is a big piece of that. So we need an obvious place in this structure for the rep to have a back and forth with the customer to have a more deep understanding of the customer's situation. But we want to be able to do that from a position of strength. We want to be able to do that in a way where the rep is demonstrating their expertise and their knowledge of the space while also having a nice back and forth with the customer about, you know, what is the customer's exact situation, exact status quo, exact path to get to this moment. As many of you know, I'm working on a new book. This book is focused specifically on this structure for building a sales pitch. So don't worry, we're gonna come back to this topic again. I hope you found this educational and informative. And thanks so much for joining me today.